If you own a modern smartphone and someone calls you while you're using it, it gives you two options. You can either accept or decline. And you might have noticed, if you delay to give your answer, your decision will be made for you. It'll stop. It'll make your decision for you. And you don't always know how much time you have to make that decision. Sometimes the person on the other end of the line hangs up and you don't know how much time you have to click that accept button. The same, as we will find out in our text this morning, is said of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We're given an unknown period of time to answer the question, who do you say that I am? And my prayer and hope for this morning is that we all answer the same way that Peter does in this text this morning as he gives the good confession. And it's important to remember at this point in the series that the disciples have been with Jesus for somewhere around two years now, a little bit over two years. And they had the opportunity over those two years to see him open the eyes of the blind to loose the tongue of the mute, to restore the legs of the lame. He fed tens of thousands of people with just somebody's leftover lunch. Twice. Amazing. And even after stopping the storm at the sea with just a word, the disciples asked themselves, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Wondering, who is this man? And during that same time, the disciples have consistently missed the point of Jesus' ministry, as he did with the Canaanite woman, as they exercised little faith, as Peter did while he was on the waters, or as all the disciples showed little faith in regarding the feeding of the 4,000 specifically. Now, while the disciples contemplated These things, figuring out who is Jesus, we pick up as Jesus is taking a private retreat with his disciples to a place even further north than they've been so far, at the extreme northern border of Israel, as they take time to settle these matters once and for all amongst his disciples as we pick back up in verse 13, where it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, or others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, what are people saying about me? What's the uh, general opinion amongst the disciples of who the Son of Man is? Son of Man, of course, being a favorite title that Jesus used for himself. It was a, uh, a title that had messianic and deistic implications that were not yet fully understood by his followers. It was a term used right out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And Jesus asked this question, intending to follow up with his next question, because he knew what people said about him. He was setting them up to hear what they had to say after all, because it was time for the disciples to make a decision about who Jesus is. I mean, after all, you don't just confess anyone to be the Messiah. 
There was some credentialing that had to take place. And, but these men at this time, they had, they had time to study who Jesus is. They had two and a half years, roughly. They watched his lifestyle. They, they bore witness to his miracles. They heard his teachings. And it was time to make a choice. And their answers are interesting. They say, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, who was listed earlier in the uh, and listed first in this list. Now, a careful observer wouldn't have said John the Baptist, as you know, clearly they weren't the same person. Uh, they were. This was Jesus's cousin. They were seen together multiple times at the same place at the same time, notably at Jesus's baptism. So it couldn't have been him. But no doubt, people believe this because this was Herod's theory of who Jesus was. Um, Herod, of course, believing that he was John, that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead, stemming from his own guilty conscience over putting John the Baptist to death. But this and this is not all that different than those who make a decision about who Jesus is based on their emotions or their own emotional experience with God. I mean, I've met people, and maybe you guys have too, that maybe view Jesus as a harsh, unforgiving judge. And that's probably because that person had somebody in their life who was harsh and unforgiving and needlessly strict. And they started uh, imposing their beliefs that they've had maybe from an earthly father or another figure in their life onto God. And And they have shortchanged themselves in understanding who God is because they allowed somebody else other than the scriptures to paint that picture for them. That's why we have to be very careful to let the Bible dictate to us who God is and not our own emotions, our own human experiences, our own earthly relationships. God is who he is. His character is who he is regardless of what our experiences have been, whether they've been flawed experiences or excellent experiences. God is in a class of his own in that regard. But then we have Elijah. Why would people think it was Elijah who Jesus was? Well, this comes closer. Elijah never actually died. He was taken up in a whirlwind into heaven in the book of Kings. So, and Malachi chapter 4 indicates that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah, that somehow Elijah would make an appearance before the coming of the Messiah. So this at least makes some sense here. However, Jesus taught that John the Baptist fulfilled that role of Elijah's coming. We already covered that much earlier in the gospel. Um, And I personally believe that Elijah will be coming again before the second coming of Christ, but that's for another time for us to unpack. So even though it's well-intentioned to honor Jesus as the forerunner of the Messiah, it's closer than some of these other theories. It's still incorrect. Jesus isn't Elijah. Jesus is the Messiah. That's a big difference between the forerunner, the person announcing 
the main event and the main event himself. And, I, and while it's close, it's not close enough. I once heard it said that close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't work for theology. Thou, it, it, when it comes to who God is, close enough is not nearly good enough. It has to be right. So in the same way, people say today, oh, Jesus, they come up with close theories of who God is. They say, oh, Jesus is a good teacher. He was a prophet. He said nice things that we like. And again, that's close, but that's not enough. That will be an unsatisfactory answer on Judgment Day when you are asked who the Son of Man is. It's not enough to say Jesus was a prophet or a good teacher. He was far more than that. He was the one who came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. He didn't come to show us the way like a good teacher. He came because he is the way. Indeed, he's the only way. As John 14, 6 tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So that, that's the truth. And we, ha- and we cannot deviate from that. So no, he's not a good moral teacher. Jesus has not given us that option. And then lastly, he's called here Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Was anyone else confused when you read Jeremiah? What does he have to do with any of this? Yeah, he wrote one of the prophetic books in the Old Testament and and Lamentations, beautiful, wonderful books, but what does he have to do with this? Well, the answer probably comes from the book of 2 Maccabees. Now, I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles, but you can't. That's not in your Bibles, unless you have a Catholic version. And even so, their Bible didn't have this book officially canonized into it until 1546 A.D., 1,500 years after the rest of the New Testament was compiled. So clearly there's something going on there. I'll explain more of that in a a little while. But 2 Maccabees was written between the Old and the New Testaments. That's when it was actually written. And it was never recognized by the Jews to be on the same level as Scripture, so you won't actually find it in here, but it was a part of Jewish tradition. It was like any other book that was written during that period of time. It was an interesting book that had some interesting things in there. Something's true, something's false. And there's this strange narrative in it. In 2 Maccabees chapter 15, where the prophet Jeremiah appears to the protagonist of the story and gives him a sword. Not a clever metaphor for the Bible, a literal sword. And he says, with this sword you will conquer. Which, again, that doesn't sound at all like the Jeremiah of the Bible to me, but okay. And apparently people had at this time accepted this tradition as truth. And believe maybe Jesus was Jeremiah, ready to hand another sword to the Messiah as he goes, as the Messiah then takes that sword and goes conquering, setting up an earthly kingdom on the earth. 
which people believed back then that the Messiah would be an earthly Messiah, set up an earthly kingdom, rule from an earthly throne at his first coming. And Jesus will reign on the earth one day. But that's at his second coming, not his first. They had mistaken the grand picture of of God's plan for salvation. And this, this appears typical of someone who elevates the teachings of things outside of the Bible and traditions outside of the Bible to the same level of Scripture, which is a very dangerous thing to do if you're not careful. Because you will find yourself believing all kinds of contradictory and strange, confusing beliefs, many of which we're going to end up correcting by the time we're done with this paragraph. But, but just hear my heart. I mean, there are, even beyond that, there are many Protestants today that believe all kinds of strange beliefs that we have acquired alongside Christianity. Other traditions, we've accepted things like karma, for instance, which is a radically anti-biblical idea that is incompatible with Scripture. It's got much more in common with Eastern mysticism than it does biblical Christianity. But you talk to people and they express belief in it. So that's just one example of many that I could give. But the point is we just must make sure as Christians that what we believe is rooted in Scripture and is not contradictory to it. This is our final authority, Scripture alone in that regard. And of course, there's many other answers that men have given to this question of who do men say that I am? I mean, obviously, Jesus and his disciples were referring to what his followers believed, the people who were coming after, coming, following him, listening to his teachings. There were plenty of other beliefs about who Jesus was at this time. People saying that he was only doing miracles by the power of Satan himself. There are people who were calling him a a blasphemer, a drunkard, or a wine-bibber. People were making all kinds of um, accusations against him. But what matters isn't what people say about him. It matters what is true about Jesus. And as our next verse implies, it's not about what they, the collective they believe about Jesus, that's going to make a difference in your life. It's what do you believe about who the Son of Man is? That's what truly matters. As verse 15 tells us, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That's an important question. <laughs> no, I've saw a fascinating debate this week and where one pundit absolutely refused to answer a direct question. (laughs) If his career doesn't pan out, he could obviously pursue a career in politics. He did a great job dodging the question. But after every question, he would he'd say, well, this is what such and such a person believes, or this is what this particular school of thought believes about this particular subject. And his debate opponent just kept pressing. He was like, I'm not asking those people. I'm asking you. What do you believe about this? And the same will one day be said of 
said to each one of us. When asked who the Son of Man is, it's not acceptable to say, well, this is what Presbyterians believe. This is what this particular creed says. No, it's what do you believe? Because it doesn't change anything for you if everyone in your family is a Christian. Are you? It, it doesn't matter if you sit under, you know, the most faithful and solid Bible teacher as your pastor. Do you believe what he says? It doesn't matter what Bible you have at home that's collecting dust if you don't read it. Do you pick it up and read it for yourself? And do you believe what it says? That's what's most important. There's a hilarious incident in Acts chapter 19 where the sons of a Jewish high priest attempted to exorcise a demon from somebody. And, the, and apparently their, their usual routine wasn't working. And because they, they, they tried to exercise him out by saying, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. These were not yet believers at this time. <laughs> and saying, in the name of Jesus, who Paul proclaims. And the demon just turns towards them and says, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? And the demon just leaps on them, overpowers them, absolutely wrecks them, and they leave wounded and just devastated by the incident. Now that seems like an obscure passage to quote, but here's the point. There is no power in calling upon a name you personally don't believe in. You have to believe in it for the power of Jesus' name to do something in your life. Jesus must be more than a name you respect or a religion that your family believes or a church that you like. Jesus must be personally believed in and followed for who he truly is, for him to make a difference in your life. And that is why after two years Two and a half years of wondering and asking questions about who Jesus is. Peter finally answers the question of who do you say that I am in verse 16, where Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love that. Peter gets it. After so much failure and disappointment, Peter gets it. And he makes the great confession before Jesus and his disciples that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of mankind. Whether he fully understood the implications of all the things that he was confessing is another story. But here he is saying that he is the one, he's professing that he is the one who came to crush the head of Satan from back in Genesis 3.15. He's confessing that he is the one whom the sacrificial system pointed to. All of that sacrificing in the Old Testament was just a pointing towards Jesus. How people would lay their hands on those animals, symbolically transferring their sins upon them for them to be sacrificed. 
Jesus was the picture of that, the sacrifice who would once for all take away sin, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied. That's who he is. And moreover, that Jesus was the son of the living God, not of those dead and useless idols of the pagan lands around them, but the son of the living God. You know, Nicodemus came close. Again, there's that word I don't like, close. In John chapter 3, in his discussion with Jesus, where he says that nobody could do the signs that Jesus did unless God was with him. And again, that's close, but not close enough. Peter recognizes here, though, through divine help, that Jesus was more than with God but the son of the living God. I love that in this city where they confessed that Caesar is Lord, where they confessed that their local pagan deity was Lord, this was where Jesus, where Peter confessed that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <laughs> Peter had made a lot of mistakes up until this point. Frankly, he's still got a few more to make. And the, and the New Testament narratives, you're never too far away from a mistake from Peter. We're only a few verses away from another rather large blunder, frankly. And I'm sure he still, at this point, can't fully explain to you the Trinity or, ex, or fully lay out end times theology. But he got the most important question right. Reminds me of the blind man whom Jesus healed. He was asked all kinds of questions by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, trying to figure out who this guy was who healed him. And he said, Look, oh, there's one thing that I know. I was blind, but now I see. That's what mattered. And here Peter is making the good confession and the one thing that you can't get wrong on, the one thing you can't afford to get wrong Peter, known for putting his foot in his mouth, he gets this one right. Praise God. And in response to this beautiful confession, Jesus says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, of course, is not so much conferring a blessing to Peter, so much as recognizing he is blessed for having made this confession, for he is blessed to have received personal salvation, confessing the Messiah for who he is. And recognizing that is a blessed place to be. But Peter did not figure this out on his own, as it says here. But that's basically what it means when Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Peter here is a model very much for the same way that we are saved today, that we are not acting alone when we make this decision to follow Jesus, to, come, to turn from our sins and recognize him for who he is and commit to following him. There's many verses. You can do a multi-hour long study on this, but I just want to throw one verse out there. John 6, 
37. John 6, 37, which says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's it in a nutshell, this age-old conundrum. If you make a decision to follow Jesus, it's because the Father has drawn you. And how do you know if the Father has drawn, has drawn you to him? Well, if you choose the Son. Simple as that. If you, well, what if you don't want to freely choose Jesus? Well, then perhaps you're not drawn by the Father. Does that fact bother you? Well, then maybe you should choose Jesus. Choose the Son. He's not going to cast you out. Funny enough, it is as simple as that. In a practical sense, at least. I'll leave it to those philosophers and top-tier theologians to figure out the mechanics of it, but that's how it settles. It reminds me of a man who died and went to heaven. And upon entering, he realized at the entrance gate, there's two lines being formed. And there's a sign above each line. One says predestined, and the other one said free choice. So him being a good and proper Presbyterian, he went to the predestined line. It's like, oh, that's got to be the right answer. I've read all the creeds and confessions. And so he goes, to the, goes into the line. He works his way up to the front. And then the angel at the front says, oh, welcome. Uh, why, why did you choose this line? And he said, well, I chose to be here. And it took a moment for it to dawn on him. Wait, I chose to be in the predestined line. And once the irony dawned on him, the angel said, oh, okay, I get it, happens all the time. You chose the wrong line. You want the free choice line. I need you to step over there now. And so they go over, and he waits to get to the front of the line. And once he gets to the front, they say, ah, so why are you here? And he says, well, somebody made me come here. It's dawning on some of you guys. (laughs) Like I said, I'll leave the mechanics of this debate up for argument for the next millennium. But the question is this. Have you personally confessed Jesus as your Savior? That's what matters at the end of the day. Have you made a decision to follow Jesus, the Son of the living God, and committed your ways to following him and turn from your sins? All of those things that turn us away from him. Or are you struggling in your heart against the Holy Spirit drawing you to him. So if you haven't done so already, do exactly what Peter did. Take a good hard look at Jesus and make that decision when you, when you see what he saw. Simply put, just open your Bible and read about him. It's all there. Observe the life that Jesus lived as Peter and the disciples had. Hear the teachings he taught. Nobody ever taught like Jesus before. No one ever lived a lifestyle that was so selfless and so perfect and holy as Jesus' life. And as you do so, if that's you this morning, just say a simple prayer in that process and simply say, God, If you're half the man that preacher guy says that you are, reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. And you just might be shocked at the answer God gives and the way he answers that question. I've heard many a testimony that began with that question. 
and the results are amazing. But don't delay in that process. As, I, as we began this service by saying, we aren't promised tomorrow. Don't let your decision be made for you by default. One way or another, locking yourself in, perhaps to a place you don't want to go. Make the confession today. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Thanks be to God.